So let me start by asking a question, and uh, it might be about 15 minutes before Larry and Lincoln are done talking, so it would be 30 minutes if I was involved in it, but fortunately I'm up here, so. <laughs> so let me start by asking a question, and you can, you can answer. So what is faith? What is faith? Assurance of things hoped for. Uh, where does that come from? <laughs> and and who, who can tell me uh, where they're getting that answer from? Hebrews 11. That's right. And, and I'm going to go ahead and read actually verse 1 of Hebrews 11. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we've got really two things that faith is. It's an assurance of things that are hoped for and a conviction of things that are not seen. Faith is an assurance and it's a conviction of what you have not realized yet or you have not experienced yet it's a conviction that those are true. You're certain of what you have not received yet. You are certain of what you have not laid your eyes on. You are certain of what you don't feel. Or you might be certain of what you might not even think. Something might not seem right in your mind, but by faith, you can have a, an assurance and a conviction that it is true. If there are things that do not feel right, if there are things that do not seem right, but they are things that Scripture has said they are true, you can be assured, you can be convinced and convicted that they are true. So as an illustration, you can think of faith being the sieve or the sieve that everything in your life is filtered through and there are some things that fall through the sieve but then some things that are held up and retained and and in that illustration everything in your life that you pour through that scripture says this is true this is the reality those things that are held up by scripture you can say, I am convinced, assured, and certain that these are true regardless of anything else. If my heart does not feel it, if my mind does not seem to think that way, if the world tells me that is not true, but Scripture holds it up as this is true, faith is saying I, true, I choose to believe Scripture and believe God and so, therefore, I will believe these things even in spite of what the world and what my fallenness says is true. So, what does a person's life look like who has genuine faith in God? So, if someone has genuine faith in God and in His Word, what does that life look like? In Romans 12, where we have been, and yes, this is the fourth week where we, ha we are looking at Romans 12, but what Romans 12 is doing is it is giving the application or showing you this is what a life of faith looks like. It is the application of all of the truths of God and salvation and man and sin and sanctification it is the application of all of those truths within the life of the believer. So these applications of salvation, they do go counter to our flesh desires. They go counter to even our fallen logic or way of thinking. And they absolutely go counter to the world. And I think we all would know that. The applications, what Paul is laying out in Romans 12 and through in the following verses, they do not line up with 
what the world teaches and what the world says is true. And so when Paul says in verse 1, and if you want, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans 12 because this is when we're going to be there today. But when Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living and holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Of worship. Faith believes what he says, and faith submits to that. It says, God has said through Paul that this is what we do as believers And so that's what we do. This is what a life of faith looks like. And Paul explains that the appropriate response to God's salvation, the appropriate response to who he is, is to worship and praise him by offering yourselves as a sacrifice. You say, here I am, Lord, use me. And as we mentioned last lesson, this is exactly what he was saying in Romans 6, in verse 13, where it says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You say, God, my body is here for you. Use it as an instrument, a tool in your service. I am here for you, not for me. And this is what it means to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And what we find, so in in, uh, um, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, just kind of as a recap, that the living sacrifice involves a renewed mind. It's changing the way that we think and conforming it to to God's uh, truth and God's word. But it also, the living sacrifice, it involves exercising your spiritual gifts in your body. And if you remember, you are a member that belongs to the body of Christ. So each one of us, we are members of Calvary and of the universal church, and we have the obligation to use and exercise our gifts and our ministry for the good of the body. This is what God has placed us in his body for. And then Uh, last lesson we saw in verses 9 through 13 that a living sacrifice was one of love. And what kind of love was it? Do you remember? It was love unhypocritical. If you remember, let love be genuine or let love be without hypocrisy. And he went down a bullet point saying these are the characteristics or qualities of what unhypocritical love is, what genuine love is. And so if you look in in verse 9 of Romans 12, it was talking about what love that was unhypocritical was like. It was abhorring evil and clinging to what is good and giving preference to one another and being fervent in our spirit and in our service and we're rejoicing in hope in the salvation. That it's persevering and being devoted to prayer. It's contributing to the needs of the body. It's pursuing hospitality. That this is what the life of genuine and unhypocritical love looks like. So you see This is what the life of self-sacrifice to God looks like. And we have these first few verses where we had looked so far. It really was looking at the self-sacrificial life in the body, in in Calvary. But what we're going to find in our passage today is he's continuing the same teaching lesson saying this is what a life of faith a life of self-sacrifice this is what it looks like but not just within the body it's also something that has to impact your daily life out in the world and it's going to be both among christians our lives are going to be shared with people in, in the body of christ but also it's going to be shared with people who reject Christ. And what we're going to find, it also is going to be shared with people who reject you and persecute you. And in that context, what does a life of faith look like? We know, going back to Hebrews 11, 
we had, starting in verse 6, actually, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. But we see this list of person after person in Hebrews 11 who were saved, they were saints, and by faith, they lived obediently in things that they had not yet seen or experienced or understood. We saw Noah, and what did he do by faith? Even though he had never seen rain, he built an ark because God said to do it. I mean, think of that. This is outside of what seems right in my mind. It's absolutely outside of what seemed right by the world. But God said, do it. So the life of faith obediently built a giant box. It makes no sense. But he did it because he had faith. Abraham went to a land that God said he would show him. Go to a land that I will show you. Abraham had faith, so he obeyed. Moses, and and think of this, Moses kept the first Passover. Why? He had not experienced anything like this, sacrificing a lamb to keep the, the sons of your people from dying? Okay. But not only did Moses obey, the people of Israel obeyed. Why? Because of faith. God said to do something that does not make sense in our mind, but they, they did it. And this is what Hebrews 11 does over and over and over. And it shows example after example of people who by faith presented them, themselves to God as a living sacrifice and said, use me, I will do what you say because you said it even though it does not seem right in my mind, and it definitely, definitely does not seem right in the eyes of the world. And what we're going to find is that today, God is calling us to do the exact same thing. The life of faith before God has not changed. Today, what he is calling us to do, and we're going to see this in verses 14 through 21, of Romans 12, but we're going to see that God gives us three countercultural and really almost counterlogical directives. These are commands, these are imperatives that we're told to do on how we live in this world today by faith. Each one requires faith, and you're going to see this as we go through. Each one requires faith because they don't make sense from the world's perspective. Each one of these directives, they also include a do and a do not. Much like what you find in um, some of Paul's epistles, the idea of putting off and putting on. There's things of what we are to do and what we are not to do. So each one of these three directives that we must do in order to live the life of faith includes both a positive and a negative And so I'll go through these, and then we'll um, go ahead and jump into our lesson. So God gives three countercultural directives on how you must live in this world by faith. So for you to present your body as a sacrifice to God, you must bless others, directive number one, trust God, directive two, and overcome evil. Directive three, bless others, trust God, and overcome evil. Let's pray, and then we will jump into our passage today. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would change our hearts, conform our hearts and our minds to the image of your Son. We pray that by faith, you would show us today what we can do to live lives that are being offered as a sacrifice to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and read together verses 14, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter of chapter 12. Okay, verse 14. And if you all remember, before we get started, (laughs) 
You know how he, he just started right out of the gun last lesson in verse 9? Man, he does the same thing this time. Just goes right for the nerve. Um, this is going to catch our attention. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. And in case you didn't get it, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. By being of the same mind towards one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind, never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, for you to present your body as a sacrifice to God, you must, number one, bless others. And the do and the do not, and these, they're just going to stand right out. I mean, they're so obvious as we read. But the do, we're to bless. Bless others and do not curse. But notice what he says. It's bless and who is it that we, we are told to bless? I'm sorry? Those who persecute you. You're like, what? And as if to reiterate the idea, he immediately repeats this command. Bless and do not curse. And it's important to point out here that Paul, right after when we were starting verse 9, we were looking at unhypocritical love, what that went through, and he went through a list of participles, um, one after another, the, these verbs saying this is what the life of love looks like. And it says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring and clinging and giving preference and being fervent and serving and rejoicing and persevering, being devoted, contributing, pursuing. It's this idea, these are the things that you are going to be doing if you're pursuing love. And then he completely switches gears in verse 14 and he gives commands. It's no longer, these are just things that you are going to be doing as you live a life of unhypocritical love. Verse 14, it is a command, bless. It's not blessing as in, this is just one of these other things that are in a list. This is something where it stops and it should shake you a little bit and stand out as something that says, this is going to be something serious that he is pointing his finger on and saying, now this, this is something that you must do. It's not just blessing, but it is bless. Yes, you, you, you bless those that are persecuting you. It's a command. I command you, bless. And this is what we're going to notice about each one of these, these do's and do nots. Each one of these are commands that Paul is telling us to do, which stands out as something that should be almost shocking compared to the way that he has been writing. And so when you look at the word bless, um, the, you're going to actually recognize a little bit, but it, it, it's, put, it's put together, it's a compound word um, in the Greek of lego, which is to speak, and you, which means well. So lego and you speak well. You put these together, and you're going to get a word that in English, we just take it from the Greek, transliterate it into English, and we get the word eulogize. 
So this word that he's saying bless, it literally is to speak well of someone. And that is what a eulogy is. It is when you are speaking well of someone's life. It's the same word that we're having here. But what's neat is this word is usually very closely associated with God. Either God is the one who is blessing or speaking well into our lives, and we see that actually in Ephesians 1, um, in verse 3, where God eulogizes or, or blesses us. But um, it also can be where we would speak well of someone in relation to God because God is the one who is going to bestow the, bestow the favor or bestow the blessings upon that person. So generally, when this word would be used, it would be calling for favor from God upon this person, praying that God would bestow goodness and blessing upon them. And we are told to bless our persecutors. That is just mind-blowing. Those that are persecuting us and often persecuting for our faith, we are to speak well and pray for the blessings of God to be poured out upon them. This makes no sense. And this is why we are called to the life of faith. God's word says it. The sieve held it up. Therefore, we must believe it and cling to it. The blessing of your persecutors If you think about this, this is actually applying what he talked about a little bit earlier in in verse 9 where it says, let love be without hypocrisy. What are we to do? By abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. And the abhorring, if you remember, was that recoiling in fear and hatred from something. And instead, what we, do we do? We cling to and hold, hold fast what is good. And when men or women in this world are persecuting you, we recoil from the evil, but we at the same time cling to what is good. And what do we cling to with those that are persecuting us? We cling to the good blessings of God and pray for the blessings to be poured out in their life. This is only possible with a transformed mind. This is only possible with the renewed mind that verse 2 talks about, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, do not be like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's only the renewed mind that can speak the blessings of God out upon someone who is speaking evil to us or doing evil to us. So, and this isn't the first time that this has been brought into the Christian faith either, though. Where else have we heard teaching like this? Well, it was Christ himself. And we saw this both in the... um, the uh, Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plains, in Matthew 5, verse 44, Christ said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in Luke 6, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And listen, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. This is not a new teaching, it's just a hard teaching. This is the teaching of Christ. And so Peter, he gives, um, when, he, when he writes his apostle, or epistle in 1 Peter 3, he gives the perfect application of this when he talks about um, those who are persecuting us in 1 Peter 3. And go ahead and do this. Um, I, actually, wait, I have, the, I have that on your, on your handout. Um, if you look, we've, I've got a couple verses here from 1 Peter 3. 
So go ahead and look on your handout. It says, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. Why? For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. You were called for the purpose of being and giving a blessing to the lost, to the world. This is why you were saved. This is why God has saved you. And you can look a few verses later in verse 15, and that's also written there. It says, but sanctify, and this is in the same context, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. So in context, when you are under persecution, you respond in faith by responding in blessing to those who are persecuting you. If you are being wronged and attacked by your enemies, you respond in blessing. You respond in faith, and that is what makes someone say, what is this hope that is within you. This is the purpose of what you were called to. You were called to respond in faith by blessing even those who are your enemies. And in response, you are able to bless them with the gospel. This has the purpose. The persecution has a purpose, and the purpose is so that you would be able to give the blessing of Christ to others. So if this is the way that we act to those who persecute you, let's go from a harder context to to an easier context. If we're blessing our persecutors, what does your life look like for those that you love? For those that are in your church and in your family. Well, verse 15 and following actually picks up right there. Right after talking about blessing those who persecute you, he then says, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weep with those who weep by being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Now, this, is, this honestly is great. I I think this is going to be one that you guys will really enjoy. To, to rejoice, very simply, I mean, it means in Greek and English, it's the same thing, but it's just um, to rejoice exceedingly or to be well and to thrive. It's something of happiness. And so the weeping, very, you know, very similarly, you could say is the opposite side of that. The weeping would actually be to bewail or a great pain and grief that you're experiencing. And usually the weeping or the wailing is in the context of death. And so here we are told to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, generally, and this is, this is usually the case, is in the context of a church body, you generally don't have different groups of people experiencing exceedingly and exuberant joy at the same time, or a bewailing, moaning, weeping at the same time. These are events that tend to be something that comes up for a season in someone's life. When there's somebody in our body who is rejoicing, that is probably something that they are experiencing that right now the rest of the body is not experiencing to the same degree. But the same thing is true with those who are weeping and those who are mourning. That when you are mourning, there's usually somebody in the body who is experiencing that to a greater degree from the rest of the body. 
But what Paul here is calling us to do is to say, you need to rejoice exuberantly with those who are exuberantly rejoicing. Not just say, I'm happy for you, but to actually be rejoicing with them. And if you think about it in that context, it doesn't make sense from the world's perspective. Normally, we could be happy that somebody else is rejoicing and give them a good attaboy. Why do you call that? Attaboy. You know, I'm happy for you. Good job. And then we continue on. Or when somebody is weeping and mourning, I'm going to bring it down a notch. Oh, I hurt for you. I'm sorry. And then we continue on. But that is not the life that Paul has called us to. He says in verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another. If there is someone in in exuberant joy or someone in crushing grief, you need to view yourself and your life as being right alongside of them and experiencing the same mind that they are experiencing at this time. It's natural for someone who has lost a mother to be crushed. You need to put yourself and have the same mind where they are, come alongside them and be crushed alongside. And the rejoicing from a new baby, same thing. Be joyful and join your life with theirs and celebrate with the same joy that they have. We're going to actually... um, have, have the mindset within our body that when one is weeping, we are all weeping. And when one is rejoicing, we are all rejoicing. And this is because we are all of the same mind towards one another. Being of the same mind literally would be thinking the same thing with respect to one another. And the idea, one, one uh, commentator said it, um, it was the idea of loving unanimity. It's not we're going to all think the same thing or love the same way, but we will have a unity that says when one rejoices, we are all close, so we're all going to come and rejoice together. And this is an obvious outflow if you think back into verse 5 where it says we're each one members of the other's body. Well, it makes sense that if we are intimately connected as members of the body, that one's rejoicing is our rejoicing and one's weeping is our weeping. And this is something that when we rejoice and when we weep together and we have the same mind together, notice it says it's the same mind, this one-mindedness towards one another. And this points to the active manifestation or playing out of this temperament in with that takes place within the body of Christ. And one one person, one commentator said, let each person so enter into the feelings and desires of the other that they would be of one mind with the other. So if you think about this, we can all understand this is what the, the church body should look like. But you can ask, what is probably the biggest barrier in the body to this unity, to this one-mindedness? And we see where Paul goes right after, right after speaking about it. It seems as though he is addressing this one-mindedness that I'm calling you to do, or calling you to, let's address probably the biggest barrier to that. And that barrier would be pride. He says, not being haughty. And really, being haughty or being high-minded, thinking highly of yourself... Um, what we find here is that what Paul is doing is saying you cannot do what will destroy this one-mindedness in the body. You are forbidden from being haughty. 
but instead, what are we supposed to do? It says associating with the humble. And literally, the idea of associating has the picture of being led by the hand. So it would be, it would be the idea of letting the lowly lead you by the hand. And you have this idea of um, if you have little children and they want to take and show you a dead bird or whatever it is that they want to show you, what are they going to be doing? They're going to take your hand and they're dragging you down somewhere. They know where you're going to be going, but you're, you're going wherever they want you to, right? Because they want to show this thing to you. Well, that's the same idea of what you have here is that where are you going within the body of Christ? What are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you involved in? This is actually saying that it's those who are humble, those who are low in the body, those are going to be the ones who are going to direct what direction you lead and go. And so when you think of it this way, you can ask yourself, what motivates me in my actions within the body? What ministries do I get involved in? What services or classes or lessons do I go to or not go to? Is it by who's going to be sitting beside me? Is it who's going to be teaching? Who's going to see me? Or is it going to be who do I like? Who do I have in common with? Who is it that if I'm there with them, that might lift me up a little bit? That is the opposite type of an idea of what Paul is saying here. That if we were to apply what he is saying, you would actually choose your small group within our body by looking and saying, which small group has the lowly in it? Which small group has a need for somebody to be in there? It's which Sunday school class, well, we don't really have Sunday school classes. So if we had other Sunday school classes. <laughs> so if, if there's a class to go to or a ministry to be a part of, but that doesn't actually look as fun because I don't know the people or they're not as fun as me, therefore I'm not going to go. That is the opposite idea of what Paul is calling us to do. Rather, what we are being called to do is to let even the low and the humble within this church, let those be the driving factor for us to have this heart and affection to go towards. This is not natural. This is against what we want. Our hearts and our minds say, go to where it is fun and go to where those who we like are going to be. But Paul says, let the humble be the ones that actually take you and lead you by the hand and direct where you are going to go within the body. He is not calling us to a hypocritical love, but he's calling us to a genuine, unhypocritical love within our body. So we can ask, how do you live with those in Calvary? Look for those in this church, in this body. And this is echoing even what we had in application last week. Look for those in the church who you are not intimate with. Look for those within the body who you do not know. Maybe look for those, and you've got to tread lightly, but Look for those who don't have people around them. Become familiar with their highs and their lows. Join them where they are. Be led to them. Be led by them. Becoming intimate with them means grabbing them after church and asking, what do you have going on this week? What is good? What is bad? Pray for them. Take them to lunch. Become intimate with them. It's not racing off so we can beat the Methodists down to Luby's. It's spending time so that we can get to know and become one-minded with all people within our body, even those that our hearts 
and their minds say, these aren't the people to invest the time with. This is why it takes faith. Faith is saying what God has called me to, even though it doesn't feel right, I'm going to cling to it and do it. So God also, though, in, in uh, Romans 12, he gives us a second countercultural and counterlogical directive on how we must live by faith. So for you to present your body as a sacrifice to God, you must bless others, bless and do not curse. But number two, you must trust God. Trust God. Look at verse 16 at the second half. It says, do not be wise in your own mind. And, th- and even though it's attached to 16, this is the second of the sets of do and do not commands. So do not be wise in your own mind. So wise, it's intelligent or prudent. And you could think, wait a minute, aren't we called to be wise? Isn't wisdom a good thing to pursue? Isn't this a good virtue? And you pull up uh, Proverbs 4, verse 5, it says, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. But if you were to look at Proverbs 4, 5, the second half of that verse says, and do not forget and do not turn away from the sayings of my mouth. The question is, is it your own wisdom or is it God's wisdom? Absolutely. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding, but the understanding and wisdom that you acquire must be the Lord's. And we, we see this, and this is one probably many, many, many of you all know, but Proverbs 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. The ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. And this is the point. Do not follow your own understanding and your own wisdom. Do not see yourself as the source of knowledge. And implied by that is that God is the source of what is wise. So wisdom is a great virtue. And Proverbs repeatedly calls you to pursue it. Wisdom is great unless you are the source of that wisdom. So let me share with you ways that actually go counter to your own wisdom. So he has said, love unhypocritical, and then he gives a point, 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 all describing what unhypocritical love looks like. Now he says, same concept, do not be wise in your own eyes, point, 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 point. And we're about to get four points here that show (laughs) these things do not make sense to ourselves. This wisdom has to be from outside of us. And the, the verbs that he's using, it's actually the same format when he was talking about the unhypocritical love. So he's, he's following the same pattern. So when we look at these, the reader who's reading this letter, they're going to say, oh yeah, I see this pattern. We've got these, uh, uh, another list. And so verse 17, the first point underneath do not be wise in your own mind, is never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And again, this is, this is Jesus' teaching in, in Matthew 5. And I'm, I'm just going to read a passage from Matthew 5 here. Um, but in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 40, it says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And and give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love, and get this, 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The tax collectors and the Gentiles, they can be loving to those who love him. They can do that. The world does not love those who persecute and hate them. The world does not. And this is why, going back to 1 Peter 3, he says um, that we read earlier, that um, you were called to the purpose of being a light and a blessing to the world. By loving them, by doing that which makes no sense to them, it will cause them to say, what is this hope that you have within you? It makes no sense. And when, when you look at what else they're being called to do, even more than never paying back evil for evil, it, he says it's respecting what is good in the sight of all men. And some interpret this, where it says respecting what is good in the sight of all men, some interpret this as doing good in the sight of all men in the world. And so as in doing good things in front of the world, right? And the world doesn't see the standard that God, um, that God gives as what is being good. But instead, what it is saying is they are the audience so that they can see in you this is what the Christian is doing. So by doing good before all men or in the sight of all men, it is something that would cause them to say, you know, what makes you be the way that you are? And, and so this interpretation, it lines up with what we really had just been talking about. Theologically, it's right. There's nothing wrong with it theologically. That if you do good before men, it will cause them to come to you and come to Christ, being a light in the world. Um, another interpretation that it seems like is better, that, that um, there's several good people hold to this as this, though, is um, rather than saying doing good in front of or before or in the sight of all men, is instead he wants us to commend ourselves before non-Christians by seeking to do the good things that even non-Christians recognize is good. So it's do what is good in the understanding of all men? Are there things that the world says is good? Are there things that people say is good? Well, do these things. It's this idea of be a respectable citizen. Even if the world does not do them, if they are things that they recognize as good and virtuous things to do, do those things. For example, speed limits. The world may not follow the speed limit, but they would recognize, unless you're in front of them over in the left-hand lane, in which case you're sinning, um, <laughs> they would recognize that following the speed limit, I mean, that, that, that's a good thing to do. Or being kind, being generous. And if there are things that even the world says is good, even if they don't do them, respect those things and do them. Very similar to what we would find in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. That's where we go to to read what? That's right, fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. But at the end of verse 23, what does Paul add? Against these things, there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit that I've just listed out, against those things, there's no law that says, don't be loving and goodness, and, and, and good, love, joy, peace, patience. All, all of these things, 
There's no law that says don't do those. They are recognized as what is right. And so what he is saying is respect the things that even the world would see as being good. And not only that, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, what are you to do? Be at peace with all men. And this is reiterating what Christ said, again, in, in, uh, in Matthew 5, where blessed are the peacemakers, or Mark 9, where it says, be at peace with the others. And Mark 9, he's actually referring to being at peace with the other disciples, um, so with the other believers. But it's this idea, all men, whether they are believers or not, you are called to be at peace with them. If it has anything to do with you, be at peace. If there is someone you do not have a good relationship with, or if there's someone you have a hostile relationship with, you cannot let that hostility remain if it is dependent upon you. You must be different. The easiest thing is to write that person off and go talk about them. That's what the world says to do, but that is not what you are called to do. If possible, it may not be. So long as it depends on you, it may not depend on you. You are to be at peace with all men. But notice the last thing in verse 19. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. And here it is. <laughs> it's trust God. Where does trusting God come from? Okay, Don't be wise in your own eyes, but instead, you are going to have to do what does not make sense, but what God has called you to do. The second imperative in this do and do not command is leave room for the wrath of God. Now, how many of your Bibles include of God in this verse? If you look down, tell me what, what looks different about the of God in, in, in that verse. Italicized. Yeah, if, if you are um, reading from the New American Standard, the ESV doesn't do this, but the New American Standard, LSB, and I think the NIV as well, if, the words are in italics. And what that means is that was actually something that is in, included to help make sense in English better in the translation. So literally, when we are reading, what we would be reading is leave room for the wrath. Leave room for the wrath. Do not take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath. They added, you know, of God, because Paul has been beating this truth of God's wrath throughout the book of Romans. Up to this point, we, we saw in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In and, and Romans 2, it says, You are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Then in 2 verse 8, in Romans 3, in Romans 4, in Romans 5, all talk about the wrath of God. And then in Romans 9, it says, And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? And we're about to see next chapter that government is actually a minister of God, an avenger of wrath on the one who practices evil. Wrath has been poured out by God in history, and we can look, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, God's wrath has been poured out. God's wrath is currently being poured out, Romans 1.18, and God's wrath will be poured out by God. So when it says, never taking your own 
beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath. What wrath? The wrath of God. Paul's um, flow follows like this. Don't be wise in your own understanding. Don't repay evil for evil. Live uprightly before the world. Don't make your own vengeance. Make room or make allowance for wrath. And literally, it would be make a place for wrath. Think of it as leaving a setting at the table for God's wrath to come. The reason why we are to make room for God's wrath is because it is written. Quoting Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is not our wisdom, this is God's. The vengeance is His. The sin is against God, it's His vengeance. God is the one who will repay the sin will not go unpunished. The sin is not just against you. It's not you. It's God. The sin is against him. God will repay with his wrath. It is not for you to repay. So when and how will God repay? Well, we see in Romans 1, Romans 13, that wrath is poured out right now here on earth. But we also find that there will be the wrath poured out against all the ungodly. In Revelation 20, at the great white throne of judgment, but we also have Romans 5, 8, 9. God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Brothers and sisters, whether you have been wronged by a coworker by a spouse, by someone who hates you at work, by a teacher, your uncle, your parent, your elder, whoever it might be. Do not be wise in your own eyes, in your own mind. Leave room for the wrath of God. His wrath has come, will come, and leaving room can even lead to the salvation because he has poured his wrath out on his son. So what do we do? How do we respond? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. That makes no sense. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is 1 Peter 3, 9. The burning of the conviction that he feels in his heart when he says, what is the hope that you have within you can bring his own salvation. And if that happens, the wrath will have been poured out upon the Son of God for this former enemy of yours. And in light of this, Paul has a very simple explanation in the verse 21. He just reiterates what he has been saying this whole time. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. And this is a different evil than what we talked about earlier where we were talking about the evil that is just a pure evil, um, an attitude of evil, this evil is an evil action. Do not let the swarm of evil actions coming against you overcome you. Instead, what do you do? Overcome evil with your good actions. These actions don't make sense. 
They don't feel right. They don't seem right. The world will tell you it's not right, but they have been held up by the sieve of God's word. They are right. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this is beyond us in our own wisdom. We pray that by your Spirit, we would have the strength and the ability, the fortitude to obey these words in our lives. Conform us to your Son, and may we be sacrifices that we present to you as acts of worship and faith. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.